Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, what matters is a chat with a true legend and icon of the game, a man responsible for designing some of the clubs that have hit some of the most important shots in history. But we'll meet Roger Cleveland in just a moment, right after I introduce my co-hosts, as always, fresh from, let's call it, an interesting week at Oakmont. Uh, a man who just cannot be pigeonholed. He's a podcaster, he's an analyst, he's a course architect, a critic, he's an author. He's our co-host today, and oh so much more, Jeff Shackleford. Jeff, this is going to be fun. Uh, yes, it, it's uh, uh, always great to have somebody like Roger on, and uh, at an interesting time in the game as well. So I'm looking forward to kicking around a few of the topics that have that have arisen over the last couple of weeks. Uh, ever the diplomat, no wonder you're such a uh, an in-demand personality. I laughed. I laughed as I said <laughs> it. Come on. From here in Australia, a man who's already forgotten more about the game than most of us could hope to learn if we started now. He's, of course, architect, touring pro, columnist, commentator, etc., etc. A little bit like Shaq, but... Uh, from this side of the world. Clates, I know you're particularly excited to chat with Roger today because he's uh, a man and his work who you followed for quite some time. Uh, yes, thank you, Rod. Yeah, I had a beautiful Cleveland Classic driver before they ruined the game and turned them into metal. I, think, I, think <laughs> I agree there, with you. I think there seems to be a tone that said here, so let's get cracking. Finally, to our guest today, if you have played any golf at all in the last 30 or more years, it's almost guaranteed you'll have swung a club whose look, feel, weight, dimensions all began life inside the mind of Roger Cleveland. There are a few from his profession who've become household names in golf, but he is one. And it is terrific to have him with us today. Roger, I really can't express how much I'm looking forward to it, and really thank you for taking some time today. Well, it's a pleasure. Nice to be on with everybody. Fantastic. Let's start with a little bit of a backdoor way into some US Open discussion. I guess this is where it's going to go. Dustin Johnson, we just saw he won, of course, the US Open at Oakmont last week. He averaged 315 yards off the tee. You started this whole club design business way back in the Persimmon era. What would that number have been back then, Roger, when you first started making drivers? What would the driving Ooh. distance average be for someone like Johnson? Well, there's two factors. There's, there's uh, the compliance that you're able to get with metal on the face, uh, meaning the, the high uh, coefficient of restitution in uh, ball speeds off the face, but also the golf ball has to... Uh, enter into that equation as well and it's it's almost 50 50 but dustin johnson is is extremely gifted unique in his physique and is in his swing and uh, he creates great speed and at that speed uh if you're a little off you're going to be way off and he's not and so uh that's that's something to be really commended especially under the pressure pressure that he was playing in and and uh he was remarkable Hmm. absolutely but but to answer your question, I would say probably 25, 30, 25 yards, maybe okay. less. Yeah, which is obviously... He'd still be he'd still be the longest. I mean, like Jack, uh, Mr. Nicholas, when he was playing uh, Persimmon Woods, he was he was really long. And I remember him uh, playing uh, L.A. Country Club. And, and you know, the fifth hole, Jeff, uh, he had eight iron into the fifth hole uh, in, wow. in, a, in an exhibition uh, uh, in all of them. Gary Player, Arnold Palmer, and... Uh, Phil Rogers back back in the day in the early 60s. I remember watching it. So For those of us not familiar, how long was the eighth hole? What sort of, how impressive is that? Well, it's a pretty what good a hole. hole back in the, the fifth hole. A fifth hole. It's so. probably, yeah. Yeah. It's, what do you think it is? 475 Four, uh, uphill tee shot. It's, it's long. 475, <laughs> you said? Yeah, it's yeah, really long. long. 
It wasn't that long then, but it was probably 440, 445 in those days, and they've lengthened yeah. a little bit. Good Lord. Okay, yeah. So I think we all agree, obviously, there's always been long drivers in the game. A second part of that question, Roger, if we hadn't gone to metal, if we were still in a timbrage, how far might we have gone with driving distance? Well, how much improvement was there left in person, or was that as far as we go because well, of the material? The Cleveland Golf Company would still be going strong. I wish we would know that. <laughs> well, Clates would have a bag full of your with, because he's always talking about them. We know that. Uh, what was the question again? I got carried away with my had we uh, Had we never gone to metal, how much, how yeah. much, was there much improvement left with Persman or had we kind of maxed out just because of the material? Well, I think we were, we we could have we could have increased the speed a little bit, but the by actually creating a, a void behind the insert. But it's it's the same thing. You're we would have probably eventually got there with some science, and that's why I actually sold the company is because I wanted to raise some money for the company to build infrastructure in uh, the R and D and and get some real science going because I knew we were going there, mm-hmm. and uh, that's that was the motivation behind it. Fantastic. Um, I'm going to open it to Jeff and Mike just for I've got a million questions to ask, but I think uh, Jeff in yep. particular, having just come back from the US Open, has got some issues that he'd like to talk to you about given your area of expertise. Shaq, I know you've just come back from it. As we said, it was an, an interesting week, uh, and I know you're still ruminating on what happened. What would you like to ask Roger about events that unfolded there? Well, I think I'd probably most curious, Roger, what your, your take is and sort of uh, seeing the reaction now to what happened in the USGA and that it's spilled beyond um, the actual incident that occurred and just general hostility towards the organization. I, I'm just wondering if you re- recall anything similar uh, regarding the USGA in terms of uh, people viewing them and, and reacting to them so negatively. Uh, never in my uh, uh, you know time in golf, and it goes back you know to about 1980. That that uh, I mean making golf clubs way before that viewing and watching, you know, opens as, as, uh, as much as I have, but I've never seen anything. I mean, Shinnecock, they got a little carried away on one three par back there in the speed of the green and they had to water it mid round, which was, I thought, you know, a little questionable. Um, but this one was, was amazing. And the fact that they have a rules official in each, each group, uh, and their 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 purpose is the sole purpose really is to define and and call the rules uh, so speed of play is not impaired. And these people are very bright and they they know the rules really well. So it was uh, it was unfortunate for sure. What's your take on that, Chad? Because it's one, something I've really noticed. I was stunned not just by the vitriol towards the USGA from fans, and it's been quite remarkable the the outburst. But some of the top players, I mean. Some of the words that have been thrown, you know, fast from Tiger Woods and amateur hour from Rory yeah. McIlroy. What's what's the problem between the USGA and the top players? This was more than well, just they got had, it wrong. Well, Roger can speak to this. There's always been a, a tension between players and USGA. It's just that it we now have social media, and we had a situation where I'm sure the players who were sitting at home watching were thinking, I've never fathom such a thing that a player would be sort of put on notice the way he was and then the rest of the field would be taken out of their their pre-shot routines and their concentration and all that to be told that this might happen 
So I'm sure they were putting themselves in the in the shoes of Dustin and the other players and thinking it was about the most ridiculous thing they'd ever heard and probably reminded them of the high school principal that uh, that just enjoyed making people feel bad about themselves and, and uh, punishing them through humiliation or something. And, and the players uh, now have a place to air those grievances via Twitter. And, uh, and then, of course, they were read on the broadcast. So, so the whole thing was utterly fascinating and you have to wonder too if if the uh, you if they had really decided if the thing was closer and it would have cost him the tournament if they really would have gone forward based on the social media reaction and i i think they would have because my ultimate sense is they really don't grasp the the influence of uh, things like twitter and people like jordan spieth and Tiger Woods taking to it and expressing their opinion. I really think that was one of the, one of the many things we learned this week. Is that a fair assessment? Though, I mean, the USGA, in all fairness, is actually full of quite bright people. Mike Davis, whether you like him or not or agree with him, is not a not a dumb individual. I mean, the USGA, you don't negotiate a twelve billion dollar TV deal if you don't have some sharp minds in the organisation. So, are those assessed? I understand the. The knee-jerk reaction. I didn't say he was stupid. I just said no, out, no, out of touch. Yeah. There's a the difference. <laughs> so so is that is that reaction, though, from those players, is that fair? I mean, overall, is the USGA as bad as they made themselves look and have been called out for being this week? Well, that's what I've been trying to sort out. And I'd love to hear what Roger thinks. Me too. What, what, what has been this take over the years or this 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 uh, tension between players and the USGA? What, what, what is your take on that? Well, I think they, they – uh, they want to give it a, a, a strict test. Uh, you know, every time they they get the, the chance to uh, bring the conditions to the. See, I, I think Oakmont is 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 the extreme. I think uh, in all the experience I have, it's the the greens are the the toughest greens there are in the, in the world uh, because of the undulations and the speed that they can get them. I mean, if if it hadn't rained Thursday. Mm-hmm. Um, you would have seen some really strange things happen on the greens. I mean, uh, it was amazing in the practice rounds. Mm-hmm. But I think they want to have a firm and stern test, and I think that's kind of they some once in a while, you know, get out get out of hand a little bit. And I think uh, I think the opportunity at Oakmont is right there on the edge all the time because of of the conditions, like. The members say you could you could play the open there any any day of the week uh, any day of the year there because of the, of the conditions and the way they keep it. But it's a it's a really a tough test. Mm. So I, I I think they're I mean that's the way they are. I think that the PGA Tour the way they condition the courses throughout the year is very consistent, very firm, uh, but not to the extreme that the USGA does and has that opportunity and. At the same time, they had the bunker soft, so they, which is a little different than the tour sets up a golf course. So, they had really firm and fast greens and soft bunkers. So that, so you can't spin the ball out, you can't control the ball out of a bunker, and as well as a firmer condition bunker, and, and uh, so that was that was on notice as well. Speed suggested they put sand in the bunkers between his practice rounds six weeks earlier, and. The week well, I think uh, I think they did. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about that. Clates, this tension between players and governing bodies, we've had many versions of it here in Australia, I guess, in the past, and we constantly, not constantly, we any time there's one of these sorts of situations where we hear pros saying, yeah, this is what happens when amateurs run the professional game. You're a player and a professional. What was your take on the whole um, 
not so much the incident that happened, that's a whole different thing, but the, but the player reaction and this reaction towards the USGA in the wake of it. Well, there's always a natural antipathy between the golf union in Australia and the pros with the RNA and on the, on the European Tour and the USGA. It's, it seems like you know pros are used to having officials they know every week and they turn up at a USGA, RNA, AGU run event and things are different and they don't, you know, they don't trust the competence of the referees. Well, certainly not in the past. That, that, and and, and there, was, there was just always that natural antipathy between pros and amateurs. I remember um, someone, the head of the RNA, saying that, well, we don't give the pros to me, Thomas, the British Open, because they go out the front of the gate and sell them. You know, I was like, you went seriously? You know, stuff like that. But um, the... the as I said, it's just always that natural antipathy between pros and amateurs, and and the perception that they're not competent at running golf tournaments, which is unfair. But you know, you you go to the U.S. Open every year, and you and you see this set up push right to the edge, and on the things that you know we all hate, I think, with you know the, the excess of high high thick grass and incredibly fast greens. And having said that, Justin Johnson led the greens and. Uh, fairways in regulation last week so the, the best player from TD Green won the tournament so you can certainly make the case that as much as we don't like the setup, it identified the best player last week on, on a bit of a tangent on that we've talked up McElroy's driving in the past but is Dustin Johnson Jeff Shackelford perhaps the best with driver in hand since maybe Norman he is freakish isn't he how long and straight he hits it uh, yeah, no, he, it was incredible, and to see that final driving distance average be 301, I think it was, was was kind of funny because we saw the TaylorMade has an ad where they they list all of his drives, and I don't know where the the math uh, uh, how that added up, but uh, he was no, he was spectacular, and you, once it rained, you kind of had a sense that that would be a way to attack the course, and his teacher mentioned that. I think they uh, Claude Harmon spotted that, and they thought. This is the way to do it. Angel Cabrera did it that way, and so credit to them for for overpowering the course. But uh, don't uh, don't underestimate how much that annoys the uh, the USGA. They they really uh, even Mike Davis, as progressive as he is with the setup, they don't really they don't care for seeing somebody sort of uh, uh, overpower course in that way because the accuracy numbers were just okay. Um, so it, it uh, but good for him for spotting a hole in the in the uh, defense of Oakmont and using his talent to take advantage of it. One of the shames, I suppose, about the whole incident, Shaq, a little bit like Faldo in 96 at the Masters, Johnson's performance has been somewhat overshadowed by that whole uh, incident that unfolded Sunday afternoon, hasn't it? I mean, and that six I needed to last might have been the greatest FU in the history of golf, mightn't it? <laughs> I know, and, then, and he had to back off, and uh, it, it's already been somewhat uh, uh, set aside because of all this, but uh, I think in time his victory will will just continue to get better because people will realize what he had to deal with and why so many of his peers were uh, were, were were coming to his defense and just knowing that you, you, there's so much as as uh, Roger alluded to with the golf course there and and that he had to weigh all that and then he gets thrown this curveball and then he gets a, a camera a fox camera setting off a beep uh, as he's over the ball on 18 I and mean, it just I. I can't think of many people who've been who've had more uh, nonsense thrown at them and, and still came out on top. And so, hopefully, in time, people will 
will view the victory even even uh, with more respect because of that. And of course, he just grabbed it I, in that final round and ran away with it. Roger, sorry, you were about to say something. Well, I, no, no, I totally agree. He, he had chance and opportunity after opportunity to to not be as uh, a gentleman as he was uh, with all the things that happened to him, and he handled everything uh, with with great class and and. Uh, um, I, you know, everyone has to take their hat off to him, especially, you know, for for um, playing so well and under under all those conditions. But the way he handled it uh, verbally afterwards was was really commendable, in my opinion, as well. Is that there might not be another player in the game, Roger, with quite the same approach as Johns? I think we all remember 2010. I think it was at the at Whistling Straits. You know, he. Walked off the course after all that had happened. He'd stepped out of the shower in the locker room, stood there and spoke to the press and just sort of said, basically, oh, well, that's golf. <laughs> Extraordinary yep. reaction, yep. wasn't it? So, Well, that was, that was really unfortunate because every, there, were, there, were, there was gallery in that mm. bunker as he walked up. Yeah. And uh, so it was hardly identifiable. But uh, That was another debate. He's, he's had some adversity. I mean, last year at Chambers Bay, it was, it was amazing the shot he hit in there and and he just hit the, you know, the putt a little hard, or he'd be in a playoff. Mm. Yeah, exactly, and, and he's no doubt so, a deserving champion. Yeah, he's. It was due. Indeed, indeed. I've read several columns, Roger, since this whole thing unfolded, and it really has blown up in the golf world. Like you know, rules issues, I suppose, do tend to uh, touch the needle with people. I think everybody in the game has a rule that they hate, be it a touring professional or the beginner. There's always one that somebody can't stand. Several columns that come back and say that all of this, a little bit like the Middle East problem, it all comes back to one issue, and that's the ball and how far it goes. We talk about it all the time on this show for those playing the drinking game at home. You can have your first <laughs> shot. What's your thoughts on that, Roger? The ball and how it's well, developed over the, the decades you've been in the game. Well, in, in the business, we're always trying to, to um, advance the game as, as much as possible, but you know, uh, knowing this is going, happening, the USGA has requested the manufacturers to submit shorter golf balls. And uh, we have done that. All the manufacturers have. And, uh, but they, have, they are threatened with lawsuit by, I think, Titleist, because Titleist has such a domination over the golf ball. Um, we're making inroads there, but, but uh, still, uh, I think... You know, to protect all the architecture and, and, the, and the game. I know at LA Country Club, which we're having the, the 23 Open, which Jeff has been so involved with, with Gil Hans, uh, we have added some 450 yards or something like that. It's something like that, right, Jeff? It's Is in Jeff that there? ballpark, yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's an expense that for everybody to do so. And there's some, some great courses like Marion that are really on the verge of not being long enough at 7,000 yards. And so there's that aspect. And also I think the golf ball today doesn't curve as much, although I saw um, some people really curve it back at the open. But but still in the, in the uh, earlier days, the ball curved more, spun more. And I think if we got a shorter golf ball that actually did spin more, uh, you would actually get some more creativity and and pure shot making back into golf I think it would be fun in the circles that I move in Roger that this seems to just be agreed it's a given that that this is an issue is that what the feedback here we hear Jack Nicholas from great players right down to people who design courses is that what you and if that's the case um, is is it genuinely that the, the threat of us perhaps a single lawsuit from one manufacturer is enough 
for the entire industry to be um, sort of held in this position where everyone agrees that something needs to be done? Well, we all want to play the same golf ball that, that in, in their defense, they, they say they, they want to sell one golf ball and it's the, it's the golf ball the pros play. And, and uh, because we all aspire to, to equate our games to, to that level and see where we, where we stand up. Um, but at the same time, you could have a tour ball and, and you could actually advance the ball for the amateur. You could do some other things to it because there's a velocity limit and we could increase that and actually make it a little bit more fun for some folks that don't have the, the high speeds like Mr. Johnson does. So there's, you know, but they want to have one golf ball right now. So, but we submitted all the short ones. Um, I didn't realise that, so that's kind of news to me, and I find that really interesting. I'll, I'll chew on that over the rest of today, and who knows where, where that little snippet uh, mine it up. Shaq, we talk bifurcation. I think a lot of us have said this is probably there. And I was thinking about this the other day. Is that really feasible? I mean, if the USGA and well, the RNA said tomorrow sure. we're now going to have a professional ball, would the PGA Tour and European Tour go, oh, okay, really? Well, a ma- oh, well the Masters... Question. Yeah, the Masters <laughs> tournament almost did it themselves. But they I mean, can, they were aren't, aren't they in a unique yeah. position yeah. in that sense, I think? Yep. Well, they were thinking about it at one time uh, pretty seriously, I believe. Okay. Let me... but here, Roger's been in the business a long time. So this is a question I have, and Clates and I, I think, have discussed this, but uh, and we've, I'm sure, we've covered it on the show, Rod. But I, I'm, I've always just been of the belief that that uh, if if a such a ball was created, and and as Roger said, you can do other things with the ball for the average golfer, that you would still uh, have people who are consider themselves purists, good golfers playing the game the right way, whatever you want to call them, who would, who would like to play the, the professional ball because uh, they, they feel that's the right way to play the game. And I, I guess handicapping ultimately ends, ends up being one of the issues that people get tripped up on. But mm-hmm. I, I just think the, I don't think that's that dangerous to have uh, a set of equipment uh, rules and, and equipment that people could purchase that, that is the professional equipment and then a, a equipment that is for the beginner, for the person who just doesn't care. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I, I'd be curious, Roger, if you, if you, you've been doing this a long time, if why that it's, it appears to be something the manufacturers are afraid of. Well, well, I wouldn't say plural there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's more interesting by the yes. minute. <laughs> okay, I got you. Yeah, no, I, yeah. No, I and that's we. No, it's it, yeah. it's and the one know. it's the one manufacturer that that uh, dominates that that category that uh, they want to defend that uh, one ball policy um, till the end because all their advertising, all their promotion, and rightfully so, they do a wonderful job, and and so you can understand that position, but you can also sure. understand the position how how much it costs for. All the all the clubs to to lengthen their you know their courses and and the courses that they well some of them are just they don't have any land left so they're they're landlocked. Quite. But let, so, let me try it a different way. Let's for, forget the ball. What about driver head size, Roger? What if we just said the the professional plays a driver of a certain size and everybody else can play whatever they want? Would that make would that make a difference? Not really. I because no. the professional hits it. Uh, 
the, they don't hit it off the off the center of the CG very very often. I, I've seen wear marks about uh, like a you know smaller than a dime on on, on drivers. I mean, so they they will find that that position even if it's the size of a persimmon head, which is you know in the in the two hundreds and uh, versus four sixty. So uh, I don't I think that would only uh, make it more difficult for the amateur. Themselves with the three, but haven't they clates? I think you had some and, thoughts on the tool. But. Uh, well, just a, a couple of points about um, amateurs wanting to play the same balls that pros do. I, in Australia, when we had the small ball, the pros brought the big ball in on the tour five years before uh, the amateurs were forced to use the big ball, and there was no desire by the average club member in, in Australia to use the big ball. They kept playing with the small ball. But um, my, uh, it was interesting. There's going to be a big tournament announced in Melbourne if that tournament decided that they wanted to do what we think Augustus should do and bring in a tournament ball, how do you go about that? Where, where would you start? Well, and the, the next question you'll run into, Clates, and this is, I wanted to get some, your thoughts on this too, Shaq. We just saw Rory McIlroy announce he won't be going to Rio because of the Zika virus, and that's a perfectly legitimate call, and there's some other issues in Rio, I think, that probably have some of the golfers concerned, but... I think bubbling away under that was a story that broke about six weeks ago that if Rory, if Rory went to the Olympics, he would be wearing New Balance. And I'd be very surprised if Nike were happy with that situation, Shaq. And I wonder what, how much that influenced Rory's eventual decision about Rio when you put the two together. But I guess the question then becomes, if Clay Tuiton a tournament says we're having a tournament ball, what percentage of the world's top players say, I'd love to play in it, but my sponsor won't let me? Yeah, oh. yeah that's a good question. No, you would no, have. That's definitely. No, you would have the. They could play Tyler Store, Callaway, or TaylorMade, or Nike, or whatever. I mean, I mean, each company would have its own tournament. And as Roger said, they've all made them. They've all got them. They're lying there, I assume, Roger, correct? Yeah, but you you would have to you'd have to submit them, get them all tested, you know, define the perimeters of of what you uh, of the specs that you want for the ball, and it would take some time and 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 some considerable expense to do that okay. and uh, somebody has to bear that expense for that tournament so that would be and all manufacturers if if you uh, like the, the point was made with the everybody has a little everybody has a ball whether it's you know uh, Strixon or you know the, the people from uh, TaylorMade have their own ball and, and uh, obviously Tylus and, and uh, ourselves and 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 Nike, so they'd all have to make a special ball and all have to be con uh, conforming to that spec. So it would take some effort. So is it, the frustrating thing about this to me, Roger, is that of all the golf equipment in the world, there's only one piece of equipment that you cannot play golf without. You don't have to have a putter, you don't have to have a driver, you don't have to have a set of eyes, you need at least one club, but you must have a ball. And yet it's the one part of the game that we seem to have so much trouble regulating, even for what many of us think would be the broader good of the game. Well, I, I, I mean, you, it really speaks for bifurcation because I want, I want different things than, uh, well, we all want distance and control, but, but when you sw swing it, what was uh, Dustin's uh, ball speed? Was it 185 or something like that? Or something in that, uh, 127 miles per hour? Um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's another world that is. 
And in fairness, I'll probably make this point for Shaq as well, I don't think anybody agrees that the athleticism of the players has been responsible for the jump in distance, but there's no doubt it's been a contributing factor, I would imagine, Roger. You've seen all the greats over the years hit the driver. Are they more athletic and stronger these days? Absolutely. In the in the conditioning, they're stronger. They're uh, I think the, the, the way they're the way they're teaching this the swing is is much better as well and more efficient. Yeah. So just on that, you you must have uh, worked or been close to or seen or seen some numbers of young Jamie Sadlowski who tried to qualify for the USA, but he got through local, but didn't get through sectional. He's pretty extraordinary. What do you, what have you seen? At well, that I know Jamie. Of, yeah. Well, he gets up to about two hundred and ten miles per hour ball speed. Um, wow. And he's and he's about 175, you know, weight. Mm. I don't know how many. Do you do that in Australia? Is it stone or what? No, what we, uh, we, have, we have kilos, but we understand. He's not big. He's not Dustin he's not Johnson. Big. No, no he's, he's not. He, I mean, he looks, he's a, he's a miniature Dustin Johnson, mm. but, but he uh, has a big swing and, uh, uh, boy, he creates some incredible speed. But, and and I've I've watched him hit a lot of shots. So, yeah, there's freaks of nature like that, and he, he's amazing to watch. And it's funny, Jeff, and I know you've advocated for this before that long drive in its own right is an interesting thing to watch, and it's a fabulous uh, spectator sport. And you watch a guy like Sally; he's a great entertainer, isn't he? Well, it's a more athletic endeavor. It, it fulfills all the uh, the. I don't know what you call them, the principles of the Olympics, the, the founding principles. And you watch them, they are the true athletes. Mm. And uh, they have to get in great shape. They have to uh, uh, prepare in a way for a competition that's different than a regular golfer in terms of fitness. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible to watch in person too because you do actually see a difference in the way they launch the ball. And you, you just – it's mesmerizing to see how far they, uh, they do it and – and uh, it's also fun to see their misses because they are, they are, uh, they are violent. I mean, it's you want to you think the snap hook in golf is gone, and then you get to see those guys. And they, I guess, Roger, it's probably because of the the loft on their drivers about five degrees yeah. or something. But they they can it, hit some it, whackers. Yeah, they can. They they uh, we we make the drivers or we, uh, Chip Brewer, uh, our president at Callaway, wants to we support that long drive organization we make the drivers for a lot of them and there it's like four or five degrees because they they swing up on the ball they tee the ball high and, and swing up on it about five degrees so they got a launch um you know i mean but that's how you hit the longest longest tee shot you can't necessarily control it but that's how you hit the longest hmm. what about the sound roger what what does that sound like, firstly, when those guys hit the ball compared to the rest of us? And how important is sound uh, when you develop a golf club? How important is the sound that it makes when it well, hits the ball? Well, the sound for to commercialize a product, the sound is huge, in my opinion. And, and we really believe that. We, we study the sound. We, we tune the, the, the irons as well as the fairway woods and really? drivers. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do an extensive study on, on that and... and uh, there's little little tweaks and little things in interior of the of the cavity of the of the of the wood that we can do to modify that the the modes of uh, of the sound. So, uh, but on the long guy on long drives, the faces have to be a little thicker for these gentlemen because mm-hmm. their speeds are up there. So we don't want them crashing the faces, and and uh, so the the cor is not quite as as high as uh, 
a commercial version because we're up to the limit uh, for that uh, when we commercialize a driver. But not we don't we don't take that driver out for those guys. We we so thicken the face. So they're actually technically quite unquite at a disadvantage with the equipment well, they're using on the long drive. A, a, a little a little <laughs> yeah. bit. We wow. we we know where to go on the speed. We have calculated how how much, but it, it's not. It's not up to the limit. Clates, I wanted to get your take on this sound thing. It's something that intrigues me. I saw a quote from Roger in an interview when I was doing some reading prior to chatting with him today, talking about sound and the importance of it. As a player uh, over the years, I'm sure I read, I may have made this up, but I'm sure I read several years ago, they did a test with some tour pros where they blindfolded them, two swings, and they'd hit the ball like they would. They cut off all uh, hearing, so they made them sort of completely deaf, and you had guys having air swings and really struggling, which sounds counterintuitive because obviously the sound comes after the hit. How important as a player, Clates, you've played for a living most of your life, is the sound of interaction between club and ball to you? I'm not sure. I used to remember, well, I remember loving the sound of Ballada on Persimmon coming out of pine trees. You did do a TV rest around the Royal Canberra around the pine trees. Okay. That always, had, that always had a unique kind of sound, but, you know, we forget how... Whenever I go and play with a persimmon driver, everyone comments on the sound, how different the sound is of the ball off the face. But um, it always amazes me when I see kids practicing with earphones in. You know, when they're, I mean, that always seems odd to me because you, I've never done it, but I assume you you miss the sound of the club hitting the ball. It's always seemed pretty important to me. Pretty hard to swing around those big wide headphones that go over your head clates, which is all that was available when you were <laughs> younger. You couldn't get the little ones that plugged in or you might have tried. What is that about, Shaq? What are the, what's the earphones? Do? Is that a rhythm thing? What's that about? Uh, for some people and some players, it's just a relaxation tool. I actually asked a bunch of players about that. Uh, uh, just tour players asking what you think of that and seeing more and more players like Patrick Reed does it. And uh, some players said, oh, it's great. You know, it, it helps me get locked in nobody bothers me this and that and then uh bill haas just found it uh just a, a completely obnoxious and embarrassing thing <laughs> that uh that on the tour level uh, that it just set such a terrible uh created such a terrible look and it, it um because i think he was referring more there are some players who wear the headphones from the locker room <laughs> um and I, th- I think he meant that more than the idea of practicing with it but um he did also mention that it, it uh, from from a practical point of view, it is it surprised him uh, that you wouldn't want to hear the sound of the ball. And even though most players can have a pretty good idea with with feel, um, it, it it still seemed mysterious to him. But he was really taken aback by the the, the look of it for the, the the tour. They're really interesting facets of the game, Roger, and club design, and all of those things. I imagine that have really advanced in your time in the game. All of those elements that you know, feel, which is sort of an intangible, would be hard to describe. Feel as I want it, and sound, and look, and all of those things that must be important for golf clubs. How much, how much advancement's gone on behind the scenes that we've probably never thought about in the clubs we play today compared to thirty years ago? Well, it's it's huge, but I I I'd like to comment on sound. That's one of the one of the pleasures of hitting a good shot is hearing that sound. You know, you feel it, one thing, yeah. but to hear it is is one of the great pleasures. And, to, uh, you know, to see a ball, you know, execute the, the way you planned it, that that's one of the pleasures. But sound is, I wouldn't want to take that away. I mean, that's that would not be as much fun for me. Mm. But sound, I mean, we have, we we do a great deal of analysis now, and we have... You know, we have the biggest spend in R&D of any golf company, and this is one of the little facets that we do is 
spend some time and we dedicate some resources and some engineers into this area and we we study it pretty hard uh we once in the in the past we would uh we'd get lucky once in a while and and get something that really sounded good i remember some first metal woods that didn't sound so good the first metal woods we used to foam we put uh you know an a and b part and it it fired off and we foamed the the first metal woods to make them sound like persimmon woods if you you guys don't remember that maybe but that's and then all of a sudden, we somebody brought out an empty one, and everybody liked that. So that that broke that up. So it wasn't a very good idea. Does anybody remember the but, first square driver and the sound it made, like a baseball bat on a rubbish tin lid? Do you remember that? It was horrible. Oh, it was, yeah, it was horrible. Yeah. Horrible. Well, we had we had one that was pretty square, and it had a real high MOI. But but uh, that was right at the beginning of what we were doing with sound, and we we didn't quite get that one right, I don't think, because. But from an MOI standpoint, it was uh, the inertial properties were really high. It was really stable. It worked. Yeah. But uh, it sounded like a trash can when you hit it. Terrible, terrible. I remember mm. hearing one hit on a driving range at a professional event. Heads turned and people were blocking their ears. Roger, let's leave that end of the bag because that's, of course, where you started your career. But now, by far, your name is synonymous with the other end of the bag and wedges. Tell me firstly how you made the transition from how far can we hit this to how precisely can we hit this? And then we'll discuss perhaps that journey well, you've had. Well, the journey started out because I missed a lot of greens, you know, in my youth. And so I always was infatuated with uh, how a wedge worked. And so I I messed around with, with wedges and, and always had a love for that. Uh, I ground the heel on wedges when I was in, in college. I mean, I because I wanted to open up the face and do different things. But but the evolution of, of lofts through, uh, through wedges, when I was uh, playing actively the 56 in college, the 56 was the most lofted wedge anybody would use. And then uh, I think Tom Kite came along uh, with Dave Pels and did a study of how he could produce more birdies on five pars because he couldn't hit it as long, so he laid up to a certain yardage, and they developed together a 60-degree wedge. And so they started making, uh, working on that, and, and everybody followed with that, uh, with that uh, area because the, the architects started making bunkers that were deeper, and, and so more loft was, was, uh, was needed to get out. And then you had a different uh, problem of geometry of the sole for that club because you, you really ask a lot of it when you were in a bunker or, you know, tough, uh, tight surrounds in, on the greens, you you had to have a, a, a sole that would work well for that as well as a bunker. So, um, and and you would open up that 60, you know, these days uh, quite a bit on some of these bunkers. So that's that's the evolution of how that 60 got, got it. And everybody either uses a 58 or 60 these days. Hardly anybody, uh, I think Tom Watson... I just joined our staff, and I think uh, I know he his most lofted wedge is a 56 because he's he's never uh, never messed around with anything more than that. Mm. But he comes from that same era that I did. Sort of old school, Clates. You've been a player for a long time, and you would have seen this evolution of wedges from the other side. I'm no doubt you've discussed with manufacturers and been offered various wedges. And some thoughts from you about what Rogers done at that end of the game, as far as players are concerned, both professional and amateur, in the wedge area. Well, I remember the first time I saw a Cleveland wedge was in Europe in the early 90s, probably Roger, 70, 80, 93 or 4. 
And uh-huh. before that, I go back and look at my old Hogan wedges and the, the Ram wedge that a lot of guys used that Watson made famous at Pebble Beach. And other assorted wedges that used to pin wedge for a bit. But they're all, when you look back now, they're all pretty ugly clubs when you compare them to what I thought was a revolutionary shape with that first Cleveland wedge. And now we see, I'm not sure if you'd agree, Roger, but like the answer putter, pretty much every wedge I see has a copy of the one you made. I mean, I mean every single wedge ping, um, Titleist, Vokey, they all just copied what you did, I think. Yeah. Um, I, you know, that's, that's very, very nice. But I, I, I think that, uh, that, that I think is pretty, pretty correct. It was, it was a good shape. I, when I started making wedges, I didn't, you know, I, I, uh, most of the guys on tour in the early eighties were using, were buying old wedges of Wilson. Yeah. And it was the Dynapower 58 and 59 Wilson's. But I, and I really loved that shape. But it had a, a pretty high heel, and I wanted to, I wanted to have it a little change from that, and I didn't want to just copy something. I, I never did want to copy anything, and so, although I did copy some old McGregor shapes, but they weren't making them anymore that way. But um, on on the wedge side, though, I I, uh, I I wanted symmetry, I wanted balance, and I got a lot of help from the tour. I. I I, I tell you, one gentleman, two gentlemen from Australia, Peter Thompson was one that really helped me on my first wedge, and David Graham was really yeah. instrumental in a lot of uh, work that I did with woods and wedges. He, he was he was wonderful and a, uh, a great help. He's a club nut, isn't he, Clates, David Graham? Oh, David boy. Graham, he, he is. I mean, he often, I always had a, I think, he, did, did he win the US Open with a Cleveland driver or a three-wood maybe, I think, but... Yeah, he always had amazing-looking woods, and you know, I, I knew he was involved with it. Roger was some of those early wedges you made, and he had a great eye for beautiful-looking. He always had beautiful-looking clubs. He sure did. He had a, he of all the players, he had uh, he was the most astute about equipment and had the best eye. I always loved showing him stuff and getting his opinion. And uh, uh, Peter Thompson was was. Pretty, you know, right, quick to the chase on that as well. So I, uh, I had uh, made some woods when he first came over here uh, to play the senior tour. I think he played a year and a half. The first year he won eleven tournaments, but I yeah. made his woods for him. But that was that was fun. When you say that, Roger, you've, you've dealt with a lot of the world's great players uh, over the years. Uh, are all of the great players really interested in equipment, or are there different types of players? Where I mean, how many are like Thompson and Graham, and how many are? Sort of, oh yeah, whatever. If you say so. Well, I th- they're they're across they're across the board. I mean, there are some that really love the equipment, and some just say, "Just give me this, and I'll go." I mean, it's they're it's all across the board, mm. and you have to read that person, and and uh, when they're willing to give you. When I I didn't have a test center when I started Cleveland, so I went out to the tour and and af- ask everybody's opinion and got some really good uh, advice and feedback. I went back and. And uh, worked on it and ground some different, uh, made some different woods as well as made made some different ideas on wedges and came back and they said, yep, they, that's, you know, everybody, you know, you talk about the, the shape, the silhouette, it has to be really good, but the sole has to be good too. And that's, that's, you know, what works on the, on the turf. So I learned a lot 
about you know relief on the heel and the toe and the radius of the leading edge versus and the and the radius of the toe heel radius as well and the bounce and the amount of bounce that you need so i i got a phd from the tour from those guys so i i uh, as well as you know i i have you know some own opinions on it as well but they really refined them that was it was a wonderful experience to to the untrained and sort of uneducated like me Roger, I sit back and I think to myself, surely what's what could possibly be left to do? How how could mucking around at the edges with golf clubs really make much of a difference? And I'm guessing that you would disagree with me wholeheartedly in my assessment there about where we stand with golf clubs. Well, you know, you you, you say that everything's been invented, but uh, we keep on going. And uh, you know, I mean, the, the only thing that I know with with the wedge, we we make irons now uh, that have a the limit of COR coefficient of restitution that that is the limit is is eight three. Well, we make irons that go up to that limit, so we maximize compliance on an iron now. And there's one thing I know: in a wedge, we will not do that. <laughs> so uh, you want to have control, distance control, trajectory control, and uh, turf interaction uh, performance and. Uh, so those are the things that you look for in a wedge, and and, and everybody, um, it, it's really interesting. I think the, the technique that uh, the some of the pros are using now has has modified a little bit because of the conditions are are so extreme and tough out there. And and I I'd, I'd like to speak about Jason Day for a second. I don't know him very well, but I. I, uh, or I don't know him at all, excuse me, but I, I admire his technique. It's like Steve Stricker in a way when he hits pitch shots and bunker shots. There's not a lot of risk break, but there's a lot of rotation and speed uh, with the club head. And he gets the sole on the ground without a, very shallow, in a shallow nature. And that's the technique that's used. And, and we, the amateur cannot hit it like Jason Day or Dustin Johnson, but they can have the technique that these gentlemen have. And, and they can have a short game that they have because it doesn't take a lot of strength. It takes technique. And, and with a proper club and a proper sole, you can, you can really you know, improve your score faster than you can trying to find five yards with your driver. Um, so Clint, take a lesson. To go, go take a lesson in your short game. Clint's professionals and get the right wedges that's right <laughs> smart people like roger have been telling us amateurs this for decades why don't yeah. we listen clients why do we not get any better well because we don't practice our short games enough well well i mean the average amateur always wants to hit the ball further i guess that's part of the mentality of golf but you know i, I mean i always thought that the true exposure of a bad technique you know, the one place where you can't ever possibly hit a good shot with a bad grip and a bad technique is out of a bunker. You can, you know, bad players can hit good drives and good iron shots every now and then. They can never hit a proper bunker shot. So it's almost as though the first thing you should learn is to play a bunker shot because the only way you can play a proper bunker shot is with a proper grip. And, and learn how the sole works and learn how to use the bounce and learn how to, you know, make that club go th through the sand and contact the ball. So it's, you know, but but you watch a, a, a poor player, and they just they never get the bunker thing ever. Agree with that, Roger? 
that I, I agree. They want to go right to the driver and swing and, and see the, the ball go as far as it can. I mean, uh, um, I don't blame the person, but to, to understand how you score and how you get, if you can get it in front of a four par in two and, and actually get it on in three, you, you can, you can ma- make a bogey, you know, or once in a while make a par. Uh, to have a to have a short game that you can rely upon uh, is just absolutely huge to to lower your handicap. Yeah, this and it doesn't take again. It doesn't take strength. It takes some uh, dedication and uh, take get a you know go take a lesson. And, and uh, the pros know how to do it. And a genuine interest though, doesn't it, Roger? One of the most interesting things about golf is that all of us from. Uh, Dustin Johnson down to the 27 marker who's just picked up the game, all say we want to be better. The real difference is those who actually put the effort in to do that, for whatever reason. A lot of amateurs don't have the time to practice. Obviously, pros have got all day, every day to practice. But in reality, you must have come across so many people. We all say we want to be better, but it's pretty clear those who do want to be better, isn't it, by the ones who are out there practicing their golf? Well, we all don't. We, we don't have much time, well, I mean, to be able to go play 18 holes sometimes, and that's why... I've tried to, Jeff, I'd love to hear your comments on this, but I've tried to uh, really, really get to the USGA, and evidently the RNA is actually having a nine-hole tournament before the Open Championship, but to popularize and make cool nine holes. But at the same time, you can go out and practice for an hour and a half your short game, and you don't have to necessarily play. You can really benefit from that. So if you have a, a chance and a place to go, go take advantage of it. Shank? Yeah, it's, it's funny. The USGA was the one that first started discussing it, but now the RNA sort of taken the idea and they're running with it with the nine-hole championship. I just wish they would – I wish we had a uh, – I wish we had a tour event with nine-hole matches. Uh, I, I think it needs to be legitimized by pro golf, and, and they don't like to hear that. The RNA and USGA, they don't, they don't like to hear that, a, that the PGA Tour and the European Tour and pro golf – uh, makes things more kosher to people when they can when they see it on TV and they say, "Oh, they're playing nine holes. That's great. Uh, why don't we do that at our club? Why don't we have a nine hole round robin tournament or something?" And, um, and they don't like to hear that. But it's great what they're yeah they're going to open it up at uh, Troon, I believe, on Saturday before the Open. They're going to have the finals of their their nine hole championship. We did. I think it's great. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah. We did the nine-hole match play thing with professionals, didn't we? Clayton's down here at Sandhurst a couple of years ago. Oh, that's right. You guys did. Yeah. yeah, we did it at Torquay Sands. It was six-hole matches. So there was six. But 36 holes to qualify. I think so. Maybe 64 guys qualified. Mm-hmm. And there was one day of match play, six-hole matches. So you went from 64 to a winner in one day. It was terrific. It was great. <laughs> it was great. Only lasted a year. Now, didn't Langers want to introduce a shot clock there, Clates? Uh, like a great big clock physically that would follow the groups around and tick down and have the crowds <laughs> counting them in. And Yeah, you had 30 seconds to hit a shot, otherwise it was a penalty. Yeah, some innovative. Uh, <laughs> that, that could be fun, though. I thought that tournament was fun, Clates. Why do you think that maybe didn't resonate? Is it is the problem with the pros, the purses, the crowds? What what didn't work about that, perhaps? Because it, it, it all happened in a day, and it was pretty fast-paced. It was the 2020 that every, cricket that everybody wants for golf. I thought it did work. It just no one wanted to sponsor it. So I suppose in that sense it didn't work, but the crowd seemed to like it. Mm, I thought it was fun. Uh, you know, had, the, had the crowds, on, had people walking on the fairways, the, the thing we always talk about. But, um, yeah, I thought it was a good event. It just, you know, just didn't get the commercial stuff, I don't think. But, you know, it was out-of-the-way town, sort of, no 
I mean, Peter Senior played, but no big name players played. For some reason, it didn't capture the imagination, but it was, but it was a good event. Here's a snippet for you guys, Roger and Jeff, that you can take with you. Ever, I can tell you that Scott Laycock won that tournament. So if that ever ah, comes up of course. I, in I conversation, Scott Laycock is the <laughs> is the name that you keep <laughs> front of mind. Jeff, you've got a question for uh, Roger. Roger, you, you got me thinking about something. You mentioned that that it's technique with with wedge play and not strength. And this is this is a little bit of a, a tricky subject without sounding like a total sexist. But uh, Clates and I have discussed this uh, ad nauseum. We're always a little bit mystified by watching the best women in the world. And Clates probably can discuss this a little bit more, um, a little bit more authority because he's actually caddied at some some women's professional events of late. But we're always a little bit mystified by their wedge game not being up to the level of, of men in terms of consistency and precision and putting spin on the ball and, and hitting shots. Is there, uh, is there anything to that? Or are we just, uh, are our eyes deceiving us or is there something there? <laughs> well, I've, I've, uh, I've noticed the same thing. Um, uh, when I go out to, uh, uh, an LPGA event, I think, it, I think it's a couple things. One, I think, um, they try they're they're very they're, to me they're very stiff uh when they when they hit pitch shots and so forth they except for one person or a couple a couple exceptions uh Lydia Ko is one um she uh I was with David Ledbetter working with her and she wanted to have my thoughts on how to hit a bunker shot higher on especially when you short side yourself so I went into show her what I would do and so forth and, and the technique to use that uh, comes mostly from Peter Cowan, one of the England's best teacher in my opinion, yeah. maybe the best teacher in golf. But, but uh, the, the, she, after I did that, the first shot that she hit, she got into that, that position and she executed it, you know, wonderfully. And, but most most women, I think, maybe don't practice enough. There's, uh, um, you know, around around the greens. I think the guys practice a lot. I know Phil practices maybe fifty percent of his time uh, with with you know different because every shot that you have in, in a short game is different. Every shot, you know, the tee shot, you put it on a peg. You know, you you got your fairway wood is out of a fairway. Most times you have rough, but so you got some variability there. But a pitch shot, you're always in a different situation, so you you got to practice it more to to be proficient. But I, I think the skill level, but I think it's based upon teaching and technique and the amount of dedication they put to the short game, as not as what uh, not equal to what the men do. Is there a need thing in there as well? Do you think Clates were? At, at, we see the guys, and you've got your short games. This is where you win and lose. Is, are the women playing a different sort of game at the professional level that perhaps the short game is not as prominent in their need? Asking you because you've caddied at that level. Well, So Young Yu, for example, last week hit 63 greens in regulation. So clearly the courses are too short and too easy because no player is that good mm. unless the course is really short and really easy. So, so what's the need for a short game when you're hitting 63 greens in regulation? You know... What did Dustin Johnson hit at Oakmont? I, I doubt he hit 50. Maybe he hit 50, but so the courses, I would say, are much more difficult. So there's much more uh, of a demand to get up and down a, a lot around the greens, whereas the women 
tend to hit more greens, I would think, because the courses are too short. They're putting on a hell of a show this year, last year or two, though. Uh, no doubt. Roger, you, you mentioned Lydia Kay. Obviously, you've worked with her up close. Is she a savant? I know Clates and I have drooled over her golf game, having followed her around Royal Melbourne a couple of years at the Women's Open, and her record speaks for itself. But. Well, she was taught the game down there, so you you guys know her better than uh, yeah. we we should up here. I, I think I think so. I, you know, I, she's she's uh, got a different. Uh, I mean, she's calm. She's she looked like Dustin Johnson with all that going on. I mean, at every every tournament she plays, she's just relaxed and smiling, and and uh, uh, seems like she's having a good time and. and she, she wins when she gets really close when she's not winning. So she's, special. she's amazing. Yeah. She's very special. Yeah, yep. No question about that. The other two yep. magic words you mentioned were Phil Mickelson, of course. And I'm sure you must get millions of questions about Phil and, and rightly. So here's the one I want to ask you. What the hell were you thinking letting him hit that ball over your head? <laughs> and what did your wife say about that when she saw it? Did she think it was as good an idea as you clearly did? Well, she, she knows I'm not stupid, you see. But, <laughs> The the thing is, he he did that with uh, Dave Pels. Mm-hmm. Now Dave Pels is what six four or something, and he, and he had his funny hat on, and and so he really had to get it over a, a large object there. And if he could do it over Dave, then it's easy over me. So, so just we did three, three, just a mathematical exactly. equation for you. Okay, Ex- exactly. I put the ball thirty five inches away to for everybody. If it's on YouTube. And uh, the last time we did it, I did see the rotation of the ball, so I said, that's, that's enough takes. <laughs> <Three. laughs> that, seriously, that, that must be scary. That, I mean, Not, is anybody no, that good? Can people be that good? Well, you know, Phil is – Phil, I don't, you know, he – I don't know if he went to school, but he hit a lot of shots with his short game. I mean, he swings at around 85 miles an hour at that shot. And he hits, you know, he literally hits behind the ball, and he does quite often. That's the other thing that's quite interesting, you know. To bottom out, to use your to use the bounce, you don't contact the ball first. You actually you you're bottoming out. Mm. Your your shaft is vertical at the bottom of the ball when you're when you're mm. trying to hit a lob shot, and so you're actually coming in and starting starting to skid before the ball and uh, using the soul and that's how that's how you have forgiveness that's your skid plate you know so to speak so uh it acts you know it gives you forgiveness but he's amazing he he he's uh he's this the shot that i remember there's two shots that i remember him hitting that i i still today the one was the back of 15 at in augusta where he in the pin was uh, front left on the five bar and he lobbed it all the way to the pin from from back right of uphill lie, but he, he threw it all the way to about 15 feet of the pin. Nobody would think of that shot. Mm. And and I would think of the grandstands behind Saracen Creek is what I would think of. <laughs> right. but, but, but on the other one, he hit a little flop shot. Uh, he had about a 15-foot downhill flop shot at, at Muirfield, you know, a number of years ago, and he was on the fringe on the tight stuff, and he had a full lob shot, and it went about three feet and trickled down and went in the hole. Wow. He couldn't hit a putt that short. So he's got he's got a ma- amazing imagination, but he has uh, the skills to back it up. But he, he works at it. He practices at it. 
He's pretty confident too. And what are the margins for error on those shots? Well, for him, not much. But he, the, there isn't a shot that he won't try, uh, and it's filled the thrill. You know, I mean, it's it's really fun. But that's that's the magic about him. I mean, that's why everybody loves him, and and uh, uh, it's so exciting. He, he missed the the cut by one. It was really disappointing. I, I wanted him to play over the weekend, but especially in those drier conditions. Yeah, indeed. I, I have this picture. I think I said this to you when we met at the lakes last year, Roger. This picture well, in my mind of the two of you going into some sort of a laboratory, you know, like crazy scientists seeing what you can yeah. hook up between you with the, the to build the club and him to play the shots with it. Is that what it's like? Well, you know, the wedge that we we built for him, the PM wedge with the high toe. It's it's a yeah. It's a v- variation variation of the the ping wedge which he put in play with the high toe, and the reason why he did it. He, he, you know, quite literally grew up with that club, so he's familiar with it. But when he opens, when he's in rough and opens up the face, he literally will take a, a standard conventional wedge and go right under the ball. And and so he wanted that extra territory or real estate up there. And so I took a wedge, uh, two of the wedges. We had the sole geometry right, and, and I cut them in half, welded one on the other, took a Sharpie, drew out the, the higher toe, Put it on a grinder, took some weight off, shafted it, and went to Valhalla where at the PGA on a Monday and, and showed him the progress I was making toward his wedge. Now this was a, the first iteration, and I didn't want to resubmit it to the USGA and cut grooves in at the toe, so I just took a sharpie and lined the toe, the, you know, to, to approximate what the the grooves would be. And he went and he said, "Well, let me hit some shots with it," and I got it to him late afternoon Monday. And he put on an exhibition, which is right next to the putting green. He stopped the guys on the putting green to watch him hit these shots. And he was literally hitting these full, full swing shots out of the hay to a, a downhill 15-footer with, with speed. And these, he just put about 10 balls in a, in a bucket around this pin. And he ended up using it. So Chip Brewer... And Tim Reed and, and uh, our guys at, at Callaway said, well, this is fun. Let's, let's commercialize this. So we did. And in the process, when you open a wedge and, and you, you, uh, you actually shorten the face and you come up the face. So we put, he said, let's put grooves all the way out to the, the end so you can get more, more friction, more action on the ball. And, and, uh, and it makes it look even bigger. It looks like you're going in there with a shovel. So it, it, it's fun. It's fun working with him, I'll tell you. <laughs> I can only imagine. It's exciting. Yeah. And, and, and different. I think, I think Clates has got a question for you. Clates, fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned the ping answer putter before, Roger. Here's a yeah. that's always fascinated me. If Carson hadn't invented the answer's shape, do you think anyone else ever would have? Oh, wow. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, I think so. When When science gets in there and... And uh, I mean, he was a—you know—he was an absolute brilliant engineer, and uh, um, I mean, he was a genius. And uh, also, the way he ran his company was brilliant. He did things a different way, very, very uh, utilitarian, very simple. I mean, the the the, the finish on his clubs were—you know—the vibratory, nothing more than that. I mean, it was just simple. It was—he didn't need all the poly. You know, I mean, they. They polished it a little bit, but then put it on the in a vibe and, and brought it back. So, 
it uh, I admired a lot of things that he did, and certainly that wedge I admired. And I never never thought of making one, you know, in that in that uh, shape. But uh, uh, thanks to Phil, we did. But I didn't want to copy that shape, so I made it more round and uh, you know a little bit more flowing than the yeah. than the, than the first uh, wedge. But he made some really good good stuff. So I th- I think yes, that's a heel toe. Uh, putter, but but the hosel, the way he uh, designed the hosel and the shaft up above and so forth was uh, was uh, really good. But I think that's the most copied uh, club in in the in golf. I think. I think so. The way more than your wedge, really. I mean, well, in, in the in that in the category, I would say so. Yeah, in the category of wedges, you know that the the five eighty eight might be the. The most copied wedge, maybe, but but uh, certainly in putters, the ping answer would be yeah. I would have thought so. Hands down. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to ask you, Roger. I know that the boys have got some more questions for you, but you, you kind of touched on it there. It strikes me that there are two types of golfers and people in golf, and there, there's there's the artists and there's the engineers. And Phil's probably sort of a mix of the two. Sevy was looked from the outside like just the artist you know who who yes watched yeah. the game that way and then there's the other people like Carsten Solheim who came to the game late in life and his brain wouldn't allow him to think that anything could be so stupidly frustrating without being able to be overcome with maths and science do, do you think that's true and which camp would you put yourself in if it is oh I would put myself in the in the artist side I think mm-hmm. um, I love I love the way when I when I first started making woods I there was a wood maker uh, in uh, in Los Angeles uh, where I got some help from a gentleman by the name of Charlie Lyons who ran a, a foundry called Four Star Foundry and and uh, Charlie was a huge help and and I, I got started with a reproduction of Bobby Jones's putter a Calamity Jade and and got the idea of making woods when I went back to try to sell some of those at the PGA show because all the big manufacturers had left their initial labor bases and, and to make woods took a a uh, a very long learning curve and and uh and each successive step could really mess up the wood so you really had to know what you're doing and there was a, a wonderful wood maker by the name of bobby and uh, brothers bobby and jesse gonzalez down in uh, paramount in los angeles and that's where i was and i i gave him an idea of of what i wanted to do and i started working and learning and how to shape things with them. And uh, so that's how I started getting really hands-on to, to know how things worked and how things didn't work. And that's the same thing happened with wedges. I did a lot of that work myself. And, and in those days, you worked with tool makers that came from the aerospace industry and a lot of German tool makers. And we would make uh, masters for them and, and uh, with them and masters of, of all, the manu- all the manufacturers were using them. I mean, uh, when TaylorMade started, they used them. Title, I mean, all everybody would use these guys, and and so I learned a lot of how to do it uh, by hand, and uh, and that's where where it came from. So I would say I'm on the creative side. Yeah. And, and and I know Clates, we've Clates and I have discussed this, and we've discussed it on the show before. The, the, just the romance and the appeal and the, the the reality of a wooden wood versus a modern club. I mean, there's, there are different things that modern clubs do that obviously the person couldn't, which we discussed at the start of the show. But it feels like there's been a little bit of a loss there. Players would get attached to clubs. I know Greg Norman carried the same timber three wood for something like 25 years, I and mean, clearly now they recycle them every six months or so. 
if that, have we lost a little bit of something in golf, a bit of the romance of golf with the, the move to metal 30-odd years ago? Well, the you know, the, the natural wood, the grain on the wood, they would um, – McGregor in the day made the best woods, in my opinion, but it was a, a short period of, in the 40s, early 50s, that they did this. And they would actually turn the, the it's called a flitch, where, where the wood would be turned in, in an orientation where it elongated the, the, the grain, the U grain, and you'd have to, you would cut the block and orient it so this U grain would be a little bit longer. And they it just made the, the the wood so beautiful when you would finish it properly, and and uh, and it was, you know, you had to go through a number of them to get the right density, and then you had to you had to treat the wood called oil hardening, and and uh, to uh, to to, I mean, wood has, wood is porous, so you had to fill that and and uh, and then finish it, and there was and there was some seventy steps that you'd have to make. You have to route. Route out the insert, the sole plate, the weighted, the port weight ports. You had to put screws in the, you know, to uh, make sure that, you know, that you're when you hit it on the screws. I mean, you had to make sure that the insert would stay in. Although the epoxies in the days that we were making them were were very good, they weren't going to move. But I used the original paper fiber uh, inserts that McGregor did because I wanted that feel, the plastic or the different plastics that were used had a little different feel. Then we tried some metal and uh, that's when the metal wood started to get in, into it. But but to to see the wood and to, to go into the turning to the shop, the smell of that of the turnings and so forth. And then you had to you had to turn the neck, you had to bore it. If you didn't bore it correctly, you would it would be gone. It would be lost. You know, I mean now it's it's in a mold. So all these things were set up with jigs and and it was quite a process and, and a lot of fun to do. Like photography, Roger, in the old days, you had to get yes. it right the first time because you were printing it and it cost a fortune. Now it's just digital. You take 100 and pick the one that sort of seems to work. No. A yeah. real, That's right. Real craftsmanship. Fantastic. Shaq, Clates, uh, either of you uh, have something? I've, yeah, I've just listening to – I really enjoyed listening to Roger discuss that. I'm wondering, Roger, I know you have a club collection and one of these days I'm going to come see it, but I'm curious how much – you ever looked into the uh, the club makers of uh, of Scotland, Musselburgh, and, and kind of that era when when the parks and everybody had big businesses, and it was uh, Forgan and everybody, and of course you remember at LA nope. Country Club where they have a great collection. But did, is that uh, does that time have a, a romance uh, or, or or of interest to you? Well, I, absolutely. Uh, that that formulated a lot of the the shape shaping and designs and and. Uh, that that I have today because uh, of the of the clubs because I started collecting or much earlier than I ever started making golf clubs and I I have and I I love the patent my my mm. uh, collection is really patent golf clubs I have about three hundred patent golf clubs all all of the Hickory era but I have some some wonderful you know old long noses and I have a a wonderful baffing spoon that is kind of the utility wood. Uh, of the 1860s, and it was a Tom Morris, and evidently it was possibly oh. even used by him from a, oh, wow. a collector, David Nietzsche, that I got it from in uh, in England. But uh, but I, I love those, you know, the shapes that they, you know, the like you said, the Forgans, McEwens, uh, uh, the the original of woodmakers were 
uh, were artists. Were wonder, just wonderful. So I love those shapes. The pear shaped. I mean that that all the shaping came from that. And uh, they got smaller and smaller. And, and uh, they, I mean the long nose is is rightfully named. It's extremely long, but and so was the club itself. And you played with coats on, you know, and and uh, it's cold <laughs> up in Scotland. Yeah. <laughs> Crazy. You didn't have a bag. You had the you had the clubs right. under your arm. You know? right, right, right. Or, or under the caddy's arm, more likely. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, lugging. Yeah. It was lugging. Well, the cat, the caddy's arm. On, exactly. On uh, on your behalf, Roger. Well, that's that, But I think that's why Scotch was invented, or something. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> I think yeah. there's plenty of reasons for Scotch golf. Was just one of them. You know? <laughs> Seemed to make some sense. Roger, I know I said last question, but just when you were talking there, do you? Do you see yourself, this is an awkward question, asking people about themselves is always difficult, but do you see yourself as part of a very long line of an industry that has been going for several hundred years? When you look back at the old club makers, can you see what was in their mind? Tom, I was thinking, if we did this with that, that would change that, it would be better. Do you see yourself as well, part that's, of that? Well, that's why, that's why I love the patent era uh, area of, of collecting. You know, the, the, I'm, you know, one of the early golf collector society members and, and they have a association that, that, uh, you know, they, they collect everything, everything that is made in golf. Somebody is collecting something. I mean, tee markers, I mean, tees, balls, balls are tremendous, but you know, I mean, everybody's collecting something, but I, I loved the, the way design was changed. There's a gentleman by the name of Jeff Ellis. I hope, the, he wrote a book called The Clubmaker's Art yeah, that is the best, the great book, the best uh, history of golf club uh, design and evolution there ever was. And that, that is actually Jeff, was Jeff's collection, with the exception of the, the early clubs and the Troon collection, which is in, in the, in, at Troon, or I mean, uh, uh, not Troon, right above it, uh, Bar- uh, not Barrick. What's right above true in the, the old, Presswick. old Presswick. golf course? Presswick. Presswick. There's a collection in there that that uh, starts off the book. But then if you ever get a chance, the club makers are marvelous, Jeff Ellis. But I yeah. I fell in love with that that phase of collecting. So, you know, I have adjustable woods. I have adjustable potters. I have uh, wooden-faced irons. I have convex, concave irons. I have, you know, all kinds of different things. So... It's you know I I love I love that part of it, Fantastic. but you learn you learn from all of it. Mm. Well, well, sorry, yeah. well just let me jump in here, Roger. We went play we you know, do some design work at Shady Oaks, and Jeff Ogilvy and I, Mike Cocking went down there, and we took out one of Hogan's old drivers. Oh. And I'm sure you've heard the story of everyone who tees it up just sits a fifty yard slice with it. So. Yep. And, and, and Jeff started, you know, in the end he was ripping it. But it was extraordinary how that thing would just, the first swings you made with the ball would slice away 50 yards to the right. No rolling bowl, stiff shaft, heavy grip, turn left. Did he really figure out a club that wouldn't hook, as, you know, as much as a swing that wouldn't hook? I, I believe so. I believe so. He definitely figured out a swing that he did not roll his wrist. He, he, uh, he figured out. He could swing it as hard as he could, and uh, uh, and not not go left. Um, but that that I heard stories from different pros from going in and, and uh, meeting Mr. Hogan the first time, and and I remember one about I think it was Ben Crenshaw or something about 
you know, you wouldn't hit the golf ball with the doorknob. You know, look at the doorknob. You know, I mean, you're talking about four-way bulge and roll, you know, the radius, uh, yeah. heel, toe, and, and top to bottom. And he, he didn't believe in that. He said, why would you want to hit a golf ball when you have, you know, deflection like that? But it actually has gear effect, and it actually works in your favor. But, he, you know, he didn't miss the center very often. And, and uh, when you did, it, he, would, he would know it. But uh, he, never, he never would miss the center very, very much. Well, Roger, you said everybody in golf is collecting something. We here at State of the Game are collecting interesting ideas, and you've added lots and lots and lots in that department for us today. It's been fantastic to chat to you, but we'd better let you go. Uh, can't thank well, you enough for taking some time. It's been terrific. Appreciate well, it's great, great to be with everybody, and, and uh, I look forward to seeing Jeff uh, soon. And, and uh, over, he's, he's, you probably know all about the, the, the South Course at LA that he's been so busy with but I, I can't wait for that to open so I know anyway thank you very much rod no Mike. not at all thank you i know you've got some ideas for him about the la country club too so you better, oh, go, with, you better go with ears open well, Jeff. no no the ears won't be open no no <laughs> ears are shut rod uh, indeed no thank thank you roger Shack. No. thank you i'm sure you'll catch up with roger no. soon enough to hear what you should be doing at la country club which is fantastic. no 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 he's doing yep. it right believe me he's, he's doing it right <laughs> Thank you, Rod. Thank you, Roger. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Clayton, uh, that's fine. A huge thank you to you as always. Been fabulous again. And I know this is one that you particularly wanted to do because I know you love Roger's drivers uh, that he made back in the day. So it was great for you too. Well, that was fun. Thanks, guys. It was great. And that wraps it up for this episode of State of the Game. Do hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back. Uh, well, not sure when. I think we went two months between our last two, and then a week between that one and this one. So it's a bit of a mystery bag. But we'll be back at some point here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.